Those of you here, I'm sure, have been to the review panel before. Is that ca the case? Anybody here for the first time? Oh, fantastic. Great. Well, for your benefit, and just to refresh the memories of everyone else, let me run through uh, the procedure. Um, we, the critics, and many of you, the audience, have been to see four current exhibitions around New York. We have a little home movie for the first two shows we're discussing, uh, Barbara S. at Magenta Plains and Peter Crashes at Theodore Art. We then discuss those shows uh, amongst ourselves and then invite um, any response there may be to what's been said so far uh, from the audience and repeat the exercise for our second two exhibitions of, um, uh, of Eric Mack and Sharon Horvath at, respectively, Brooklyn Museum, just down the road, and, um, and Pierogi on the Lower East Side. <clears throat> Great. I'm afraid um, I should be saying that you're to be rewarded for the her heroism of being here and nowhere else with our usual party at One Grand Army Plaza, but regrettably... Um, as I think a member of the art committee has to be there to officially host us at that august venue, um, and they're not. They're all elsewhere. We won't say where. But um, <laughs> tonight, I'm afraid, um, you'll just have to go and get your own beverage somewhere in, in uh, Brooklyn. I can recommend a very good Indian restaurant on Washington that I went to the other day, but won't be going to tonight. <laughs> Not because I wouldn't love your company, but because I'm on the, the verge of a little deli belly myself, so it's not going to be appropriate. Anyway, that's probably too much information. Um, it's my great pleasure now to introduce the panellists, who are also all regulars. Kara uh, has been on the panel twice, Chris three times, and I'm afraid John and I have both lost count on the number of times he has been on the panel. He's been a regular since our first years at the National Academy. Um, I would mention that tonight and all previous nights have been recorded and are podcast at artcritical.com. And I would also mention that that June the 4th meeting, <coughs> excuse me, that Cora uh, mentioned is a special. Uh, we don't usually go as late as June, but because the Whitney Biennial opens so late this year, uh, we've pushed our schedule through to the early summer, and uh, we will have a distinguished panel, uh, including Karen Jones and uh, Christian uh, 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 Fonet, Viveros Fonet, and one other to discuss the Whitney Biennial. So, um, Christopher Stackhouse, uh, this is an interesting panel because we have two poets on the panel, so we better uh, please don't think or don't even think anything prosaic this evening. We have two poets in our midst and a practicing visual artist. Um, I feel very shabby just being a professional art writer, but um, one does one's best. Uh, Christopher Stackhouse um, is, uh, is now teaching. Um, he, has, uh, he has taught at MICA and other institutions. He now has... Um, uh, a, 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 an instructor's position at Bloomfield, New Jersey, um, and um, he's also uh, working on a catalogue essay 
at the moment on Jean-Michel Basquiat to be published by uh, the uh, Brandt Foundation. Uh, Cara Rooney is, a, as I mentioned, an artist. Uh, she's been in Mexico City for much of this year, uh, collaborating on a project which I had the pleasure to see at Dumbo Open Studios this last weekend. Um, she is also, um, has in the past been a prolific uh, critic. Uh, she was for many years, another thing she has in common with John Yao, from whom she took over, uh, an edit art editor at the Brooklyn Rail. Um, she's now um, a freelance writer in addition to her studio practice. And John Yao is uh, the uh, professor of uh, critical studies at Rutgers um, University uh, in the MFA program there. He is um, uh, a distinguished published poet and critic and art historian. He's contributed no less than two titles <coughs> in the series of um, Lund Humphrey's uh, Modern Painters um, series. Uh, he contributed the, uh, the title on Thomas Noskowski, which came out in the first year of that series, and more recently uh, on Philip Taff. And he's also a founder and co-editor of uh, Hyperallergic Weekend edition, um, which is their, their heavy-duty criticism component. So, ladies and gentlemen, the distinguished panel, please welcome them. <laughs> Fabulous. So, panelists, we can swivel round. It's time for us to see the first video on S. Barbara S., sometime member of the no-wave post-punk band The Y-Fronts and founder of the East Village zine Just Another Asshole, has a parallel career as a visual artist. She favors low-tech photographic technologies like the pinhole camera, exploiting an aesthetic of distortion, blur, lack of decipherability. Her first show with Magenta Planes, titled Someone to Watch Over Me, focuses on several series that tap into surveillance technologies. In 2010, the artist joined a community with access to surveillance cameras along the Texas-Mexico border, for instance. As Sophie Covell writes in Art Forum, rather than try to monitor suspicious activities such as trespassing or drug trafficking, S made screen captures of wild horses traversing a mountain side by night, for instance, and an electric fence warning. Images of beauty and caution that, though banal, somehow feel threatening. Another series, made while bedridden with bronchitis, examines the air conditioning unit on her fire escape. Notions of surveillance resonate with the second show we're considering this evening, Peter Crash's Contact, at Theodore Art in Bushwick. In 2017, Crashers was a subject of an exhibition at the Cooney Graduate Center that explored the interaction between his studio activity and his parallel practice as an unpaid community activist involved with the Atlantic Yards Pacific Park redevelopment just down the road from where we're sitting now. As the artist has written, the paintings are the last step in a process I have been engaged with from beginning to end. The imperatives I feel outside the studio 
are explicit, so the outcome in the studio is particular and linked directly to the real world. Reviewing Crash's Cooney exhibit in Hyperallergic, Patrick Neal concluded that the best art often addresses the context in which it is made, and Crash's ongoing project as an activist painter underscores the winning formula of empathy over depersonalization. Well, it's, it's curious to me, actually, that uh, these two exhibitions, that um, uh, the one exhibition that uses what would seem to be, to be the impersonal um, medium, not merely of photography, but of a kind of appropriated photographic imagery, is the one that's the most maybe uh, poetic and personal, and uh, as opposed to concerned necessarily or overtly with the politics of surveillance. Whereas um, the artist, uh, we're going to start, please, with Barbara S. Yes, great. Whereas uh, Crash is um, bringing the artist's hand to bear on the work um, is actually the one who's um, overtly socially active. And I think that's um, something to savor and perhaps explore when we come on to think specifically about crashes. Um, but Barbara S., the quality of what she's doing, what do, we, what do we feel like we're really observing or enjoying or perplexed by with her exhibition? Um, Cara, I think I'll start with you. Um, it makes sense, as you've been engaged as an artist most recently with a collaborative project that... Um, uh, I'm afraid I've forgotten the name of the Mexican artist. You'll have to... Nestor Quinones. Nestor Quinones, um, that actually uses um, video and photography, photographic stills in a, sim- in, in, in a particular way. Um, what, 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 was, what was your feeling being in Barbara S.'s show? Um, I had many feelings looking at the work. Um, I'm very aware of S's role in in the 80s downtown scene in New York. And I think that in a way that has that has continued to inform her making of images. The surveillance images to me were not as interesting, for example, as the shut-in series, which she made while as you said in the video, bedridden with bronchitis. Those seem to be a much more um, personal and vulnerable exploration of what image making can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and ironically, they felt <laughs> more threatening than the surveillance images. Yeah, in that, their and sense those are of, authored images, aren't they? Yes, yes, in their sense of personal isolation and thinking about this idea of the screen and of distance between individuals Um, of the surveillance state, one of the spaces that we tend to feel comfortable in is our own home. And here, S seemed to to portray uh, in a sense of alienation from that space or uh, a sense of looking at these very mundane objects through a new lens, through a new periphery. Mm. Um, And so... While the surveillance images, I think, are interesting for what they show about the positioning of cameras and of the constant watching that we are all 
um, subject to. The images themselves didn't really strike me as anything particularly original. Um, I really saw more of, uh, more of her perspective in the shut-in series. Right. Do we, should we be looking, Chris, to the individual images to be... And, and this is actually a question that we could ask of both these artists. Uh, whether it's, whether they're the, the classical onus of, of aesthetic responsibility for the individual image to be compelling um, works or not with a show that is um, so much um, about a certain attitude towards uh, process and uh, the discovery of images. Um, should we be worried about how compelling each individual image is, or should we go, get into a flow in which we can somehow um, immerse ourselves in the vagaries of this um, strangely arbitrary kind of focus, lack of focus, decipherability? Do, you, do we apply different standards if it feels like the show is about representation in some way? I mean, I was, uh, I, I felt, um, I can say, well, <clears throat> I know I've met her, and I, I, I shouldn't say I know her, but I've had conversations with her um, at Barge it's been <coughs> a long time ago, many years. Um, and there's, you know, there's a few things that she said that kind of struck me back then that I thought about as I was walking through the show. Um, it's a relatively small show, relatively small space. I mean, I think with the ex exception of Sharon Horvath, what I'm about to say is probably applicable to the other three, um, that the installation didn't do a great service for the proposed conceptual nature of the work. Mm -hmm. um, and so that for that, I am left with the objects. I'm left with what's on the wall. Um, and uh, I did, as I spent time with the work, find some of the imagery to be beautiful, which I was surprised about. Yes. Um, uh, and I found um, the, the, uh, the narrative of process that is evident in the work, but also in all of the uh, promotional materials, um, compelling but almost too polished in the finished product. Mm -hmm. uh, so some yeah. of the grit um, that is proposed with things like Just Another Asshole as a zine um, and her uh, history as a kind of punk uh, figure on the Lower East Side was a bit lost. So there was this strange disjunct between what I thought she, you know, would be a presentation of, of um, a, a little bit more uh, uh, an art with a, with slightly sharper edges yes. than, than what what actually what she gave us. Um, that said, uh, from a you know purely about beauty, mm -hmm. um, I thought the fire escape uh, image was a really beautiful image. Yes, um, one of my favorite images in the show was uh, the kitchen. Uh, this uh, shot of the stove, the old gas. <coughs> 
uh, lit stove and the red chair, like a kind of yes. kitchen shot. Yes. Um, those are things that I do. And I think many folks kind of do in the closet, take pictures of their house, mm -hmm. kind of discreet pictures of their apartments and environs. Um, and so I think there's a certain um, empathy or way into mm -hmm. the work from mm -hmm. that perspective, kind of a lyrical way into looking at the work, a more personal um, way um, of, of dealing with it, that um, there is the this element of everyone's an artist, everyone has an eye available kind yeah. of thing, um, which then belies the kind of ominous character of surveillance. Yes, um, yes, that's, that's, that's fascinating. John, um, the, the fact that some of these images are beautifully framed in, in white frames and others uh, we get on a, a monitor and um, that, that whole sense of um, uh, the kind of the, the grittier, um, more um, kind of cheap and mean feeling that seems appropriate to um, this imagery. Um, this this struck me as a kind of curious taxonomy, as a decision as to why still images are, are treated so differently from the moving images. Um, uh, did you have any sense of that being an issue? Well, I ended up thinking about the horses on the television, these kind of ghostly figures mm -hmm. wandering, and then I thought that she was really juxtaposing that these horses are kind of free in a way. And what does that mean as to those people trying to cross the border? Yeah. And, I, and that became a kind of interesting <coughs> poetics in a way as, as of what you don't see being what's in your mind as you're looking yeah. at what you're seeing. And that, that I liked more than the photograph of the horses. Yes. And I was struck a lot by the word downstairs more than I, w I was surprised right. by. Yes, that's the, the, the work that's more popular on this side of the yeah, panel as I, well. I went the, downstairs and ended up staying there much longer. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I thought, this is just so banal, but somehow haunting in a way. And you feel this kind of weird alienation, as you say, but a funny absence. Like, mm -hmm. what are you actually looking at? You're looking at stuff that you see every day, but somehow it's like you've never seen it before. Yes. And that really struck me quite a lot. And then when I went back upstairs, I ended up again looking at the horses on the TV. Well, uh, however, however um, kind of banal and mundane the method of gathering the images, these um, kind of low resolution, heat sensitive uh, cameras, to which she had access, but obviously these are non-authored images, these are right. appropriated images. Despite that fact, the, um, <coughs> excuse me, one can't get overcome, unless you happen to live on the border between Mexico and Texas, you can't overcome the implicit sublimeness of the landscape, right. and therefore the, the, the exoticism of these uh, horses at night. Um, whereas uh, it, the other way around with a, a, a fire escape and uh, um, uh, an air conditioning unit, um, that actually she gets more of a head start by not having the head start. Right. 
having to work harder to find the weirdness of um, meaning and poetry in in that subject. But I don't think the sublime is actually located in those in those images of the Texas Mexico border because they're so far removed. There's no way to locate where they're actually taking place. There's no sense of identification with the space itself. Mm. Unless you read the press release, you wouldn't be able to identify where these images are right, being it's not taken. Right, And one of the things I think that allows the viewer in and that conjures this sense of intimacy that we're all referencing is the fact that those images of her apartment look like New York. They look like New York in the <laughs> 80s. They, they reference the sense of nihilism and outsider status that she occupied as part of this no wave scene. And there's still something reminiscent of that in those images, which is part of why we're drawn to them. Whereas the others yeah. could be screenshots of so many different surveillance images that we've seen. Um, and so I, in, in a sense, I think the sublime is actually located in, in the mundane as yes, opposed to a in, kind of cognitive sublime and also the, the sublime of uh, dipping into the kind of the squalor of um, not the squalor. That's a, too extreme. But um, the it's more than just banality. It's a, a certain kind of Nan Golden bohemian run downness that um, uh, is is conjured by. Uh, not that Nan Golden has an exclusive on fire escapes and air conditioning units, but um, <laughs> somehow it, it gives us a sense of uh, a particular kind of romantic space. I'm not sure, however, that you really have to read the press release to, to know or care about the, the wildness and the remoteness uh, of uh, the terrain that's captured in the, the Mexican and in the Texan. Um, works. I think it's pretty obvious. It's somewhere <coughs> depopulated, dusty, dry, and somehow with some implicit menace or threat in it because why else is there surveilling taking place in such a innocuous-seeming locale? And then the press release clarifies what I think could have been a suspicion, a valid suspicion, um, in an innocent viewer's mind that, that this is indeed a border. And then, but then, of course, as soon as you know it's a border, you're all set up, aha, yes, okay, the border, because, um, well, we're all galvanized or bored by the border. So um, the border is our, one of our issues, obviously, artificially, right now. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I would try to put a more of a case. I think the East Village photos are easier to like. Let me put it to you. Let me challenge the panel by saying uh, we like them more because they're easier to like. And the ones upstairs um, are maybe demanding more of us, they are less, the, the non-authored images are actually less passive than the authored ones because um, the authored ones, the artist has done the poeticizing work for us. The unauthored ones, we're collaborators with her in trying to work out the, the weirdness and mystery of these images. Oh, that's an interesting point. I mean, 
I, don't, I was fa- I, I'll just say I was fascinated by this kind of pixelated image because you think of horses as a romantic image to begin with and then they're all white and kind of ghostly and it took me a few minutes <laughs> to figure out what was going on mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I liked that I couldn't figure out what was I mean I didn't read the press release till later and that's when I went aha but I didn't have an aha moment as right. I was looking at it and I liked not having an, uh, an aha moment um, so there was that and I also like the one that keeps coming up with the face of the two X's. Oh, yes, the self-portrait, it's yes. Unnerving. I yes. Mean, you know, it's a self-portrait and your eyes are crossed out. That just unsettled me. Yes. It reminded me of those contact photographs of Marilyn Monroe that Richard Hamilton made into a set of collages right. in the mid-1960s with lots of X's, but I think they're Norman Parkinson photos. And the X's are basically saying not to use those images, so, but that, but the, the sense of negation uh, that the X connotes, um, obviously with Marilyn's early death, um, took on a poetic resonance, and therefore the cancelled eyes of the blurry artist um, in a work, in a show about surveillance, um, I can't say it means X, Y, Z, but it's it's resonant with meaning, isn't it? What did you make, Chris, of that particular image, the cancelled eyes? I've seen it before. <coughs> uh, I've seen it before that show. Um, and that was something else that I noticed. I went in the back room and looked through some of the books. There's a, uh, a small, perfect bound uh, catalog they did for the Queen's Museum show she did. There was another show she did in Atlanta. And a lot of the images were the, were the same. And so, and there was a, so you could see like a breadth of history um, of her work. And one of the things that I noticed was that her, at least in terms of the books and in terms of the exhibition, something was consistent that there's, a, there's lots of interruption in production, that there's not a, um, a consistent through line of aesthetic or kind of a, even a practical uh, through line through the work, save that we're dealing with photography. Um, and, you know, she did, she obviously did a lot of supporting of other artists through publication and whatnot. Yes. Um, so that was something I thought about that maybe there's not enough focused time mm-hmm. um, on a practice to develop um, a, a, a richer conceptual um, uh, undergirding. Um, so a lot of those pieces kind of free float a bit. Um, so I thought about that and that particular photo, if I think about it in the overall scope of things felt, um, especially free floating and, um, uh, slightly out of context with everything else. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I did find, uh, where there's possibility or potential, um, in the, foregoing um, is that there is a consistent thread of isolation yes. that each image, um, both the videos, uh, the each item in the show, uh, con- you know, persistently, consistently in a, in a, um, in a very um, almost morbid way dealt with isolation. And even in some of the photographs that I thought were the most beautiful, uh, the one beach, which yeah. is not 
I don't think is authored by her, but I've seen that image before, many times before. Um, and the fire escape and the kitchen, all three of which are, were color, um, they still, even though they had this, this, this ensuing um, beauty that, that is uh, making its way, departing from uh, the kind of morbidity that comes along with surveillance or the, the ominous uh, notions that we associate with surveillance, um, those connected beauty to, to that, uh, which I thought was a really interesting thing. Um, mm, yeah. Some other thoughts, I, but No, that's, that's great. Um, I'd like to move our attention now to Peter Crash's um, uh, his show at, um, at, at Theodore Art. Uh, and as I said in the introductory remarks, um, authored images um, painted um, the hand of the artist, but the paintings are uh, from photographs taken by the artist. He told me not with the intention of being um, source imagery for paintings. So photographs actually taken as part of his social activist um, practice, uh, documentation, propaganda, maybe in a way kind of surveillance. Um, uh, not really surveillance, documentation. It's, uh, it's reportage is the wrong word as well. Um, he's, he's organized these events, uh, in particular <coughs> because he's concerned with the local community claiming access to and, and, and use of um, the Atlantic yards, that with this huge uh, luxury development, it's the kind of, it's the Hudson Yards of Brooklyn, essentially, um, uh, but without a shed and perhaps with less steel and glass. But um, basically, um, a, a claiming of a hitherto non-existent neighborhood by uh, building suspensions over the rail tracks and then being able to psh, throw up um, whatever. And, um, and so it's about, it's, about, it's about communities having some stake in that. And then the images, we get an image of uh, 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 Miley Cyrus uh, dancing uh, and, uh, on the red carpet, leading to an unveiling of a, uh, some kind of space um, there. Um, MTV actually brought in a thousand extras, each of whom was paid to be part of a crowd and dressed in a particular way uh, to generate a sense of uh, razzmatazz with with some opening. And then um, Mr. Crash is organizing, helping to organize a counter demonstration in a way, uh, a street party, a block party of local kids um, with face painting and so on and so forth. So um, again, as with the photographs of uh, S, um, should we worry too much about the painterly quality of these paintings, or should we take it as one conceptual package, John? I think you can do both. You don't yes. have to have it either one or the other. What I really liked about this work was you felt like you were in the crowd. Mm -hmm. Did he kind of push you up against these people 
group, you know, and that you feel that urban <coughs> thing where you, you mm. like, how do you move around? So there's a kind of nervousness, mm. what's going on. Some of the, you know, why the frying pan against the fence? Uh, to make noise. No, no, I know, oh, yes. but oh, I right. mean, just the idea, oh, okay. I'm yes. not quite yes. that out of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Sorry. Um, so there's that, and you know, so the viewpoints, I thought, okay, he took the, he took the source's photographs, but then he chose the photographs he used as paintings. Yes. And, and there's a lot about the viewpoint, what you see and what you don't see, which is always when you're in a crowd, you see something and you know you're not seeing something. You see the shoes, but you don't see the person. You see this group of people, where are you? This kind of angled view. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and the one of the two policemen standing in front of you, mm. I mean, there's a kind of, uh, he really, I think, got, to these view viewpoints, a kind of the kind of edginess you have to have to survive in an urban environment and always be kind of aware of your surroundings. Right. Yeah, and I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. So, Cara, Cara, would you say that the picking up from what John is saying there, that the even though they're from his photographs, they they, they feel very fresh to me, and I wonder if the the painterly freshness, the spontaneity, the, the immediacy, the sketchiness. Um, it's very much like, well, from the time of uh, Baudelaire onwards, there's been a painting of the crowd, a painting of the flaneur, a painting of uh, crowd scenes, where the actual means of dispatch has kept up with the, um, <coughs> the frenetic pace of the modern city, mm -hmm. a certain kind of futurism, but also just the Impressionists, um, or, or pretty much every, every movement that's used paint uh, to convey a sense of uh, the lived-in modern city and crowds moving in a city has um, opted for a, um, a fast, spontaneous painterliness rather than a very slow, measured design. I think one could say maybe futurism is an on the border between those two, but most movements, if you think about it, um, well, I suppose there's social realism. But okay, this is not social realism, is it? So what, what do you what do you make of his um, paint the painterliness of his painted photographs? Right. Well, I mean. Baudelaire, for example, writes at length about the rapidity of the brushstroke and how that has to mirror modern painting, has to mirror the pace of modern life. And um, I think that's something that you could locate in these images. But actually, when I was speaking with Peter, he was explaining his process. And he was saying that because these are gouache, they're actually extremely laborious to make. Oh. That they look as though they're painted very quickly, but they're made from layers and layers of gouache being laid down on top of one another. This was one of the first questions that I asked him. And it, it was interesting to hear how the paintings convey a certain type of energy. Um, also, as John said, of being directly in touch with the crowd, this idea of contact, which is the name of the show, mm -hmm. placing us in contact with the community, with individuals, and then thinking about how meticulously labored 
these paintings are to make in the studio. Mm. I think also what is antithetical to this notion of rapidity and time is the fact that these photographs were taken over the span of 15 years, mm -hmm. and it's only now that Peter is going back into this archive of documentation and selecting specific images to be to be worked out on on paper on canvas, mm. um, and so there is a lag. I think that that exists there between the actual technical process and also the source imagery and the way that we feel pushed up against the images when we're in the gallery. Mm. And I, I appreciated that, that there's, it's not a, um, that there's a disconnect there. And also an echoing of this sense of disruption and of convergence that the images themselves represent. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Chris? Uh, yeah, I talked with him for a little bit, too. Um, it was, I mean, a strange sidebar. I came into the gallery and not, didn't know that T was the artist. And he was talking to a couple. And, um, and as he spoke, I, in my mind, I was saying to myself, please, just be quiet. Like, don't talk about this work. <laughs> <laughs> because he was, he was kind of ruining it in a way, because um, <laughs> I came in and I thought, all right, I mean, I've used gouache before, and anyone who's used gouache or watercolors knows that it's, you know, there's a, it's a different, it's a different way of working. It, it takes, it takes a certain amount of skill and attention and, and whatnot. And so I was just admiring the draftsmanship and um, color choices and just, uh, just the, the, the stylized, um, aspect of the work in terms of brush strokes and, and letting the white through and the kind of, um, you know, almost kind of reminiscent of, you know, uh, late impressionism or impressionism in the painting, doing it now. Um, so I was kind of like, oh, well, what is this about? But then he was talking about uh, being an activist and how this work was connected to his activism and his, mm -hmm. his neighborhood involvement and that it was part of a larger of uh, community uh, organizing project. And so it just kind of dampened everything because suddenly I'm like looking at it through that lens at, mm -hmm. while he's talking. Um, and I also, you know, did myself the disservice of actually talking, leaving while he was talking the first time I came back and he was still there. And then he started talking to me again. And then he finally said, well, I'm the artist. And I was like, I kind of gathered that. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, he uh, said this to me, which is, an interesting reveal, he said, you know, I've been an oil painter for a very long time. I've been making big oil paintings and it, I didn't know what to paint about. And so for a while I stopped painting and I thought while I was in the studio, why am I sitting here making paintings? I'm not doing anything to better the world. What can I do to actually better myself in the world? And so he goes out and starts to do this community activism and Prospect Heights, whatever. Um, and then he throw he, he then he feels the need to paint again, and he kind of brings the painting back into it uh, through all the ways that she that Kara, Kara just uh, yes. enumerated. And um, so, you know, seeing it through that, it's a very it's a different thing. I, and I felt um, I was disappointed when I heard that. Now the images themselves, if I didn't hear him talk. And I had just saw, saw the images on their own. Yes, I would have thought that they were very, they were that they were really beautiful. Um, 
I did think of some other artists in relation to him that I think he could con consider. I was thinking about Leon Golub as one person for him to think of. Um, and then I also thought about somebody that's a little bit com complicated for him to consider, but um, George Duro from, uh, from New Orleans, mm -hmm. who painted amputees, mostly men of color, um, did not sexualize them, but did not hide their sexuality. And that was a, a kind of artistic um, social engagement, but neither thing was over articulated, um, right. so to speak. Um, you could even think of somebody like Aldrin, uh, Alvin Baltrop, who didn't paint, but you know, took photos, but the same kind of community engagement and different subject matter altogether. But there was something about the, the two people I just named, Baltrop and Duro. Duro painted and took photos. Um, this marriage, this marriage between um, living amongst a community and and having empathy for that. Community. Oh, Hilaire Bellon, and Beltrop. The Alvin Beltrop, yeah, and Alvin and Beltrop. Uh, George Duro. Uh, again, <coughs> the content is very different, and it's a different, you know, radically different. But there was something that was missing in that. Um, Peter crashes is not in those. His is not in those paintings. Um, as much as I would like, and I feel like they would be even richer if there was some way, if he was less um, detached from the subject. Mm -hmm. And that happens because he's, it's double mediated. Like, you know, these are paintings made from photographs that he pulls out of his collection that, and then he needs the reason to paint. So a lot of the effort that's being made is to practice painting and to bring himself back into that. And at the same time, there's this meditation on you know community work and how he can bridge those things, and it's a very awkward dance to do. Right? Um, Are we saying pu publicly in, in, in a way that his his protesters, his policemen, his kids having their paint uh, faces painted, they're kind of like Mirandi's jars. They're just a sub, just just a, a vehicle for a, a painterly exploration. I, I'm not sure. But Ma Mirandi's madness was a little bit more <coughs> clear. I mean, or a little, a little less mitigated, and so the the emotional, the psych, the the um, the psychic space in which yeah. Mirandi inhabits with the objects that he's making mm. resonates in those paintings in a way that that there's less psychic energy here. Here, this feels almost purely voyeuristic, but empathetic, you know, to a certain degree. And I, you know, it reminded me too of the. S as a work um, that that both things are um, um, without anchor, and the anchor is 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 a little bit more lyricism, yes. a little bit more honesty, a little bit more on the on the line, psychic psychically and emotionally for right. the artist. What's what's very interesting though is that you've gone uh, to uh, artists involved in a community, a certain degree of activism a certain degree of protest, whether it's uh, Beltrac or Golub. Um, and, um, but as you got there via saying you just like them as, as painted images, um, one could actually go in the other direction and just ignore the social activism and think of them as painted images of, of crowds, of children, of, uh, of, of regular people, of... Uh, Cops and what have what have you and and celebrities, and and, and then um, the the context is a very different one that one that has no um, overt connection to activism of any sort, 
but is, are just painted images. And one would think perhaps of Karen Kalimnik or Elizabeth Payton um, or indeed uh, Fairfield Porter and Alex Katz and just uh, quick painting, painterly quick painting <coughs> of a social scene. Um, um, I think that more formalist argument, I, I find it very uninteresting to a certain extent. I mean, one of the things that we spoke about was where is the meeting space between activism and painting? And can those things coexist hmm. uh, with one another? When does it spill over into exploitation? And I think that this is something that I got the sense that Crashes was thinking about. Um, and one of the reasons why in the beginning he did not make images, he did not make paintings from these photographs right. was because he was afraid of exactly what it was that you were enumerating. But somebody, uh, who's, uh, somebody whose social activism is non-negotiable and whose paint involvement in painted images is non-negotiable would be someone like Kerry James Marshall or indeed Leon Golub already mentioned. Um, so, so for those people, it wouldn't be, um, I'm doing some social activism, um, I ought to be painting as well, maybe I could paint about social activism. There, it's, it's kind of, they're existentially driven in one inevitable direction, which is painting that has a political conscience. And this, there's almost a sense here. At first, I find the story of Peter Crash is very um, endearing, but um, actually, a certain kind of blah of the, the disconnect between uh, the making of paintings and the specificness of this imagery really does relate much more to the strangeness of Barbara S. than it does to uh, Marshall or Golub, doesn't it? What would you say to that, John? Mm, I think some images are just better than others. Yes. I mean, that's, in the end, I mean, I went through the show a few times, and I ended up liking this, which is that... Yes. That's probably the best. The seed yeah. bomb, yes. It has a political purpose, but you have to read the... You have to yeah, talk to the artist to find out. I, yes. I didn't read the thing. I just... It got me. And then the yeah. one of the two <coughs> policemen standing behind me. Yes. And because... If you think about it, none of us really want to be that close to a policeman. I mean, right. there's two on my block driving away the drug dealers. I, you know, I always give them distance when I walk past them. I don't want right. to get too close to them. And yeah. suddenly we're pressing up against them. I was like, this is really uncomfortable. I don't want to be in this. Right. So those two I liked a lot. This one I liked less because it seemed like I've seen that image before. Yes, <laughs> yes. And it's also the black and whiteness of it. Or I've seen of, this image before, but the other two had a kind of freshness to them <coughs> and a kind of edge. Yeah. Right? The plant bomb is both looks like plants and a bomb. Mm -hmm. And that kind of double, it's like the cherry the cherries of Gustin. They could be yeah. cherries or bombs. I mean, there's a kind of little edginess to it. Well, I think the, 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 um, the, the seed bomb, the idea is that the, the protesters would throw into what's a vacant lot um, a bomb with a, a, a cluster of earth with seeds in it so that, in fact, a garden would grow and uh, to make the point that this could be a garden or perhaps to make the point that this is not just arbitrary wasteland, this is 
uh, real land. It's guerrilla gardening. Guerrilla gardening, yes. <laughs> um, I think it's a good moment to bring in our audience to, to ask for some responses to both these shows and to the potential <coughs> connections between them. Um, and there is a mic going around. Uh, it'd be great if you could wait for the mic because um, uh, we are, as I say, recording um, for podcast. Um, that would be really great. Um, but I'll take order, uh, comments or questions in any order. We generally prefer comments to questions because we just rather the discussion broadens out. Yes, uh, I think there's a... Are you scratching your head? Or yes, you are scratching your head. Okay. Always a disappointment when someone scratches their head just at the moment when you're hungry for a comment. But um, <coughs> um, anybody like to share? Yes. Um, if you could wait for the mic, though, if you please. Yes, thanks. Um, I just thought that painting style was very interesting. It kind of looks like plastic, the black, and the way it, it, I thought it was a plastic image. And then it, he has both flat and extremely shiny and the way the light comes off it. And I, I don't think I've seen that right. in that way. That's unusual in terms of all the figurative painting that's going on right now. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Great. And, and Barbara S., um, anybody? Yes. Um, Michael. Since nobody's talking, I'll um, just say I feel like there's, and this is what Chris was talking about, there's so much is pressure. Is the mic on? Sorry, I'm not, I can't hardly hear. Can you just check the mic is on and really speak into it? Yeah. It's okay, quiet. it's quiet. No, I'll be louder. Um, there's so much pressure for artists to talk about where their work comes from. I wonder if Chris feels like there is a piece of Peter that feels the need to explain the work because of that pressure. I mean, I wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to address. I'm sorry, I don't know your <coughs> name, uh, but what this woman here said. Uh, uh, oh, Crystal. Hey, hey. <laughs> um, that uh, I think Peter is a great painter. I, I mean, uh, technically, very, very proficient painter. I mean, it's it's um, it's one of those situations where um, someone has learned to write very well, but just doesn't exactly know what to say. Um, and in a way, I feel like that that's what I got from him was that he was a good painter. He is a good painter. Um, you know, I mean, he's. If you see the paintings in person, they are, uh, I wouldn't say slapdash, but they have a, a roughness to them. But they're very, they're very beautiful and very well done. Um, what he said to me and what I saw when I first walked in, the first thing I said when I walked in is, these are painted from photographs. I said it the minute I walked in, I just wrote it down, photographs, which then he told me that there was photographs. Um, and then the next thing I thought was, usually when painters start painting for po from uh, photographs, um, often they're looking to figure out something. They're trying to figure out either something technical or something like, how, how, what am I saying here? Or what can I say? And so to, back to your question, um, I think that they're, um, that in a way, artists shouldn't actually have to say anything. That's, you know, they should be able to just make. As a, as a poet, there are times where you just, you're just trying and you should try and try and try and try and then try and you break through. Um, I just thought of a really good example of someone who, 
you know, Richter, I would say, I mean, to, not to bring up, you know, big fellow there, but, you know, um, he's one of those people that for years I've always looked at the work and I was looking at it recently and, and, you know, he's, I mean, I don't know him and I'm sure tons of critics would argue with this and whatever, but he's constantly or was for a while really trying to figure out what is good about painting what makes it make a difference and he trying he's trying all these different things and he has the facility and he has all the tricks and he has the technical he has the tools to do it and he does it and and every time it's like is that what is that like why is that like why you know whereas somebody like Kerry James Marshall who says it very he's super articulate about it, very straightforward about it he says you i I gathered these tools and this talent that I have. I learned to do this so I could say these things mm -hmm. in, in the paintings. And that's, those are two very different spaces that are achieved after decades uh, of, or dozens of years of commitment. And what I'm seeing with crashes is someone who is, has technical facility, but doesn't yet have that lyrical, personal, deep-rooted commitment to struggling with no content but what is his own in order to achieve something. But Richter, so is, they, Richter is historically located in somewhere that, in a place that so specifically needs and wants to be obfuscatory. A what? Needs to be, have that sense of um, alienation from subject and meaning. Um, being, you know, coming coming out of the Second World War, uh, a father who was nominally nationally so, national national Nazi. socialist, yeah. um, uh, growing up in East Germany, when being sort of press ganged into social socialist realism, um, pretend, you know, doing this capitalist realism shtick, um, and then devoting a whole career to kind of blurriness, uh, a, a kind of moral as well as technical blurriness. And then Kerry James Marshall, the, the, the polar opposite, uh, somebody who knows, you know, if I have the amazing, if I have some talent and I've had an education, being who I am and where I'm from, that's not for me to go and fid fiddle and fuss in the studio and look for a subject. Uh, in my situation, I, well, I've got a subject. Um, and so Crashes is, is in a funny position between those two. I, but I'd say a lot closer to Rick, a, a lot closer to uh, Marshall than to Richter. But all of these are positions. I mean, I don't think that painting is ever contentless. I think that right. it can be it can be concerned with its with its own materiality, or it can be concerned with the world. But it's always arguing for something. And in the case of Crashes, I, I think it's just a matter of him not arguing well enough yet or mm. articulately enough yet in the work. In the work. Um, right. That the technical facility is there, but that the way that he's wrestling with the subject matter isn't, isn't compelling enough quite at this stage for the viewer. Um, but whether we're talking about Richter or Carrie James Marshall, I think that the, reading, the reason that painting exists, the reason that image making exists, is always to argue for a particular position. Otherwise, why make it at all? Because of the inherent drive to paint that one has if one is a painter. I mean, 
Some painters have a subject, they just have to cultivate the means to express it. Some painters have a painterliness and they wonder to what they should maybe attach that painterliness. Um, and others don't have any dilemma. Um, do you want to follow on from that specifically? Yes, <coughs> can we get the mic back here? I, I just wanted to add No, no, well, but A, we can't hear you, and B, we can't record you. So, well, from all you've been saying, I just wonder how old he is and how long he's been painting. Because it sounded like he did all this uh, political activity, and then he wanted to paint, and that was what he had to work from. He was born so in 63? Hmm? No, he was born in 63, I believe. And He's in his 50s. Yeah, in his 50s and became yeah, an activist in 2004. Later than 63. Maybe um, 67. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, he, he has a track record as a painter, but as we've, as we've explained, he took a break from painting to pursue social activism. And getting back into painting, it makes sense for him personally to... Um, to use imagery that arises from his social activism um, as the source material for his painting. Great. I think uh, we're ready to move on to part two of the program. So, um, oh, sorry, but then not quite know what's humorous about that. But anyway, we are ready for part two of the program. So, um, if we could have the second movie and panelists, if we could swivel around. Sharon Horvath's first exhibition with pierogi on the Lower East Side brings the studio to the gallery, reconstructing a picture rack, filling vitrines to capacity with sketches and notebooks, mixing works of differing scale, support, degree of finish. Like Barbara S., though through painting rather than photography, Horvath discovers a universe in a grain of sand through close examination of banal surroundings, viewed with a sense of the marvelous. As Jennifer Samet has written of Horvath, quote, she knits together the dream world and the world of matter with webs of thin and small marks stitched on the skin that is her painted surface. They are at once the maps and schematic diagrams of a flat world theorist and a sophisticated space maker. They are correspondences with spirits via everyday news clippings. They take place in the realm of a private bedroom and turn the ceiling into a night sky that opens into outer space. Eric N. Mack, Let Me Walk Across the Room, is a site-specific installation of the artist's textile paintings and other works in the Brooklyn Museum Great Hall. The curators relate the young African-American artists' variously dyed, stained, and painted textile assemblages to the experimental painting of the 1970s of such artists as Sam Gilliam and Alan Shields. According to the exhibition literature, quote, in draping what the artist calls fabric collages, he exuberantly collapses the borders between painting and sculpture while also evoking fashion a medium that appeals to him for its framing of style and its possibilities for aesthetic experience within everyday interaction. Some of his works incorporate hand-stained 
pages from fashion, hip-hop, and other popular magazines, which explicitly refer to subcultures invoked in Mac's art and offer yet another alternative to the conventional painted surface. Sharon Horvath. Uh, John, it seems like a kind of... um, I'm not quite sure what to do with her outsideriness. I mean, she's obviously not Forrest Bess, but... um, uh, and yet it has that kind of, without hopefully any kind of self-mutilation involved, it has <laughs> that, um, that vibe of somebody who, as Joan Samet was saying, is, is sort of in touch with spirits. But on the other hand, she's not Hilma Afklimt either. So um, is, is she a case of an artist who somehow is entitled to tap an energy that we associate with the outsider, although she is a consummate insider? Uh, I thought of her as an artist. I mean, I liked the show, and I thought it was a little much of a muchness, but I kind of was intrigued by that. Um, I think of her as someone who's gone to India a lot, which she has, and is trying to take (coughs) all of that and de-exoticize it and make it hers and she's trying and I think she's quite successful at it I think she does it quite well I don't end up thinking of India in the paintings I think she's really trying to transform that all that stuff into something that's hers yeah and I think in the best paintings which is the big one in the back in the sky painting that she does that some of the others uh, I liked a little less, but I still liked them. Um, so I didn't think of her as an outsider in that No, sense. I don't think of her as an outsider. And I, just, I, don't think, I think of the work as outsider-ish. No, I didn't think so, because I think there are artists that are re- referencing that and kind of <laughs> taking that as a pose or a position, and mm-hmm. I don't think that's her position at all. I, and so, therefore, I didn't think of her as you know trying to be Henry Darger or something or or Forrest right. Best, but there are many artists, some of whom live in Brooklyn, who are trying to be Forrest Best. She's not one of them. Okay. I do have one quibble, is I didn't like the records attached to the paintings. I thought she, I thought for someone who spent so much time making a painting, she did these two shortcuts, or she'd do a shortcut. I thought, well, that's an odd thing to do. Why not just make the circle? Instead of adding the record. So that was the only... The LP, yeah. Yeah, the LP. That was the one quibble I had with the work. But I think it's a small quibble. Well, you've also uh, shared another quibble, which is is too much of a muchness. Yeah, but Peter Blake had that too, and I was still fascinated. I like Jess's work, and that's too much of a muchness, but I I, I get lost in it. It's okay to take drugs and get lost. Yes. Good. I'll, 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 I'll use your permission. Uh, yes. Well, we don't want to get too close to the police. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. Right, indeed. Um, um, now, it's interesting. I'll, I'll turn to the half of the panel that were very exercised by and articulate about the difference between uh, how you paint and having a position when we're talking about um, uh, Peter Crash's. Um, I, I was at pains to try to say to John, I'm not saying she is or is trying to be an outsider. I'm just saying the work 
feels outsider-ish. And he's saying, no, no, that's not her position. Well, I don't need to know her position. I'm just looking at the work, and it has an outsider-ish vibe. Uh, do you share that at all, that, that instinct? I think that there are visual references to what outsider art quote unquote looks like mm. but I don't I agree with John that I don't think of the work as outsider I I also very much saw the influence of India in her work uh, thinking of certain types of pattern complexity intricacy um, even just the the roof lines of Indian temples <coughs> I think is is very much there in the imagery that she's that she's cultivating Um my my general sense of the show was that it was maximalist painting at its most personal, that it was also very accessible, very, very vulnerable. In If she's taking a position, I think it's a position of vulnerability, actually, yeah, by bringing us true. into the studio environment in cer- certain decisions around a juxtaposition of objects, the vitrines, which are references to family history and to different types of making. Um, and so I, I felt very warm mm-hmm. when I walked into the space, despite the fact that some of these colors are, are very acid in tone, this black with green and the yellows. I mean, it's difficult to make a good painting using that color palette, but somehow you felt enveloped when you walked into the space. Mm. Um, and it, I mean, it is a show that took multiple viewings to digest. Yes. But in the end, I don't know. I, I walked away interested in it, in what she's doing. And I wonder what a more minimalist selection would have presented. Um, I know she worked site specifically with the gallery to do this show. And I have questions about how the work would have read if there was less of it there for us to see. Um, well, that, that is yeah. a big statement, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a manifesto of process. And it's it's saying it seems to be saying um, the this is not uh, that the sum is greater than the individual parts. This is not uh, a mass of resolved finished objects. This is um, a slice of the mind or the soul of the artist and and her her private universe, but also her her process. Did, did you read that, uh, Chris? Um, what are the politics? What are the not politics? What are the um, what are the implications of essentially of intentional overload and a reconstruction of a creative space in what is in fact a viewing space? The, the creativity is on the viewer's part, but um, it's um, this is not a big studio visit, is it? No, I mean of of the four artists. I, I mean, I liked this work by far the best, um, and uh, and part of it is I think Kara just said. I mean, I don't know if you said generous, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it is very generous work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, doing lots of studio visits with artists who are not famous and don't have galleries um, of all ages, almost you know, from their twenties to their eighties, uh, which I haven't done a lot of recently but over the years many 
um, you see this kind of thing in their studio where they're just yeah. sometimes there's just a, a for lack of a better term a dumb painting over there and uh, and it's a it's a beautiful dumb painting and there's this uh, I mean there's a kind of release and kind of letting go kind of um, a psychic release a kind of opening that is happening with 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 the works I mean I do did feel from a less than positive side of my <laughs> critique um, that that in a way um, we're we're forced to contend with a personal narrative in order to um, uh, make sense of how she arrived at some of the some of the the discrete works that were called paintings, um, but some of them I just really enjoyed. I mean, I mm. you know I had a, I I would like to live with them in a couple of them. Um, there's an openness, a generous, the generosity. Um, she's not trying too hard. Um, I saw in one of the vitrines a few self-portraits that she had covered over. She had poured paint over, and they were done when she was in art school, and she had did little paint discs that she poured on top of them. And she's not the greatest draftsman. I mean, she just not, doesn't have that skill. Um, but she has something else, and I think that's... I like that. I like, you know, like the Joseph Cornell, the Jean-Michel Basquiat, the... I, I like... You know, even Joseph Boys, I love people that that say, "This is what I got, and I'm doing it. I'm doing that, and that's kind of what I got here." Um, the it was a little the installation was a little frilly, um, and little frilly. <laughs> yeah, will you agree? Eh? Where, where where does generosity end and self indulgence start? I mean, that's, that's my. Uh, well, yeah, I mean that's that's a good question. I mean, because she had pictures of her family, and she had like, you know, she had this cutout of uh, Agnes Martin on it, like underneath glass. There, she had like her dad's paint chips there. Mm -hmm. She had furniture from her family. She had some of her parents' art tools mixed in with it. She's mourning. There's, you know, there's kind of a cenotaph for her sister. You know, there's, you know, there's a lot going on right. that builds a psychic pressure that you feel when you, once you see what's there. And then you turn and you look at the paintings and you, you're like, oh, wow, this is just like uh, almost therapeutic, like almost this kind of therapeutic release through painting. Um, and so that was that I didn't want that much instruction. Um, but yeah, I also the generosity is the, the daring to actually put that out there. Um, you know, she is not Liam Gillick. She's not you know, she's not in that that zone, but to try and kind of slightly step in that into that territory, um, slightly step in the Chris Martin and Peter Atchison territory. And, you know, she kind of went in all these different places and still maintained something that was very much hers. I appreciated that. I mean, I wish more artists would be um, that honest and allow themselves to be that kind of emotionally clumsy in public. Um, I think it's not only the artists that don't allow themselves to do that, it's the spaces in which they exhibit that don't allow them to do that. And I do think that it, it should be noted that she's having this show at Pierogi, which is one of those spaces that's existed for longer than most galleries in New York have. And it's also and a gallery that's... Um, it's, it's primary commitment is to a, a whole uh, slew of artists who could be said to... Um, well, in my years as a newspaper reporter, when I was 
more interested in meeting a deadline than being kind. I once described the aesthetic as the fuss and fiddle school of Brooklyn, uh, of Williamsburg. So um, almost all the artists who show at Pierogi do have this um, no, no family hold back sort of attitude to uh, give them every scribble, give them every detail, uh, work these work these works till they are worked. Um, highly wrought kind of image making um, and kind of nerdiness that um, is very much the the vibe of that of, of almost all the artists who show in the gallery and they show many wonderful and remarkable artists but it's interesting that there is such a consistent aesthetic and by showing in a way that she never showed at Laurie Bookstein for instance uh, where the shows were much more polished um, and focused on specific and individual pieces by giving us this um, uh, conduit into her mind and her working environment um, I think she sort of welcomes herself to the pierogi aesthetic that was my point well, there's a, there's the, well, the, the interesting thing too, which is, and again, it's this is I, I don't know if this is the reason why I like this show the most, is yeah. that there is a a very articulated dialogue between curation and artists. Like there's a there's a the pierogi space is saying, hey, you can do this. Mm, right. and yes. Nice. Yes. What, what do you have? Okay, that works. That doesn't work. I'll, we'll we'll try that. We'll try that. When I was there, uh, uh, Joe is his name, right? He, he yes. goes and pulls out. He's like, oh, you should see more. And, you know, he brings out yes. a big file. Thing. <laughs> Sorry, it's such a rationed exhibition. <laughs> yeah. Let me show you something more. And he pulls out. Let me bring you to the basement. And he's like flipping through, <laughs> yes. and he's like, oh, she did this. She did this. She did this. And then he pulled up this one drawing that was like. It was a really half-assed drawing, and he he's going, "Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this great?" And and I and I thought to myself, "I was like, oh yeah." Yeah, well, you were but, making the mistake of looking at for the aesthetics. You should have seen how much fuss and fiddle there was. Well, well, the thing was was that it's, and this is something I have to give Mr. Ashes and Pete, Peter some credit for because he always talks about this, but is that um, that artworks have, and this sounds really hokey, but artworks do have this kind of soul. You know, like once you see an artwork on its own, mm. you can walk by it on the street and like, and you see something and you go like, oh, wow, I don't know why I want that, but I, I want that. And this kind of show and the kind of art that I tend to really like mm. is that when art, when artists make those things or like they, they collect from their, they collect their own garbage and go yeah. like, oh, actually, this is garbage, but it's kind of cool garbage. You know, you know, it's like that too, that is a very well-trained artist, Stan Lewis. He's like that, where he, uh -huh. he he will fiddle and, you know, mess around forever, and yeah. it will be something really but bad. His, his is a Giacometti, <laughs> his is a Giacometti School of London-y kind of um, obsessive reworking until and, and the, the final testament is a, a highly wrought image that carries with it Soul. the mess yeah. of its making. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, which is... You know, it has its own aesthetic connotations. But um, I, I think, you know, when we, when we started with Barbara S., I was concerned with um, individually framed stills, moving images, and the, a, a sort of taxonomy and the implications of that taxonomy within her work. But, um, with, with Sharon, it's that on, on steroids. Um, I <laughs> suddenly had the thought of a, of a particular German artist, and I'm going to do this really embarrassing thing that one 
does uh, when it's being recorded for posterity. I can't remember his name. Um, showed at Museum of Modern Art in a show, a MoMA, German artist. You had to stand in line for hours because um, the show, he could only have a certain number of people in the show at once. It was a reconstruction of a kind of working space, a very prolific artist um, who uh, uh, will show you individual framed paintings, unframed paintings in stacks, um, uh, sketches piled up. Anyone shout out the name of this guy? Dieter Roth. No. Kippenberger? Not Kippenberger. He's younger than Kippenberger and Roth. Not Polke. Not Polke and Hirschhorn. No, much younger. Oh, um, sorry? Albert Olin. Not Olin. Hi. Kai Altoff. Yes. Kai Altoff. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, fries, it only took 12 tries. <laughs> Yes, to buy your pie. <laughs> Note to editor, cut, and just go straight to David Cohen and say, they remind me of Kai Altov. Do you all know Kai Altov? <laughs> Clap. Um, but it's that aesthetic of, uh, of, of combining ultimate earnestness with nonchalance of touch. And so that's, I think, the key here, is that the, the reason she gives us a whole vitrine overflowing with scribbles and scratches and negated pieces and objects found and blah, 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 leading through the family furniture, leading through this to the painting. But the painting, it's, it's almost in a way, uh, it's kind of a way of saying, um, it's both generously showing you the mind that produced the painting and, there one, and this is going to sound a little mean, but hedging your bets as to the status of a finished painting by, by saying um, the painting could just settle back into this mush of, of all this wonderful um, um, effluvia of creativity and sensibility and sensitivity. Well, but the show is divided into two, really, because it's the front is the <laughs> studio, and then you go as you go back into the room, there's nothing. It's just the paintings on the wall. So I think she, I don't know if that's hedging the bet, but she's kind of showing oh. both sides of the personality. Is the yes. all the stuff that you carry around with you that you're not supposed to show right. that she decided to show. I just went straight to the back and looked at the paintings, and I did not uh -huh. look at the vitrines till later. So all that stuff that you guys got bogged down by, I didn't get bogged down by. Okay. But I think that's the space she's in. She's interested in this liminal space, yeah, right, yeah. between the I phenomenological mean, the and the psychic. When you walk Halloween and turn around, you see the painting of the bed on the wall, and that sort of seemed to me the key, right. that it's really about a dream space and what mm -hmm. kind of eludes us and what sticks and haunts us. Yeah. And in a way, that kind of explained the whole show to me. Because mm -hmm. in a way, you can't share a dream. You know, you tell your wife tells you, your husband tells you a dream. You go, oh God, why do I have to listen to another one of these? <laughs> Somehow, in her case, they, it becomes interesting. The dream, mm. that dream liminal space. See, and I was drawn in by the bed painting as well, but more because of the platonic question of the bed in relationship to the artist that the artist can paint an image of the bed without knowing what the bed is, right? right. This is therefore why the artist can't be allowed in the Republic, because they don't know what it is that they're painting. And right. she's questioning this, this metaphorical relationship between the tactility of painting and the psychic space of dreams. Dreams, right. And that 
you know, there is no, there is no solid ground there. And so as we kind of move fluidly between this installation of the studio into the more white cube uh, representation in the back of the gallery, we're, we're, we're also in this purgatory with her. Right. And that's what I think is so generous about the show is that she's not, she's not dictating that we be in one place or the other, but that we can be in both simultaneously. Yes, the opposite of the Peter Blake show. Did you see that show? No, not yet. I've seen a fair share of Peter Blake's over the years, but... um, That's his studio recreated. Right, right. Well, Joyce Pensato also brought her studio into one of her shows at, um, um, yeah, in in Chelsea. So, Petzl, thank you. Not my day for proper nouns. Okay, um, I think, panel and audience, I'd like to turn our attention to the final show where the issue of taxonomy uh, is, uh, is quite crucial, I'd have thought. Um, a young artist, um, Eric Mack, um, thank you very much. Uh, Chris, will you, will you lead us off on this one? What, what, what was your um, take on Mack? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I... Um yeah, it's difficult. Uh, I when I first looked him up, I had never heard of him, um, so I looked him up online just to see what what was what. And I, you know, I really don't know know what to think. I mean, the, I looked at the installations that I saw online, and I looked at the, sh- the what's at the Brooklyn Museum, and I immediately thought of Sam Sam, Sam Gilliam, and you know, Sam Gilliam is mentioned in one of the wall texts right away right after that and um i just didn't know what to think of it i mean it's uh it's <clears throat> you didn't like it then <laughs> uh no not really no. um no i didn't I, I i didn't really like it um i did not like it right i just i just thought i thought he had too much space for one, I mean, I thought that the ins- installation was extraordinarily spare. Um, so he could have done with some overload. He could have done with some overload. Yeah, certainly. Or just a smaller room. So I don't know if any of you have seen the show, but uh, in the audience, but there's, he has, you know, uh, I don't know if it's cheesecloth or gauze or linen or whatever stained. And then there's, you know, there's supposed to be, cl- they're referencing clotheslines. And one of the clotheslines is extended by uh, filament. And so the clothesline stops and then the filament goes and it's kind of invisible. And I'm saying to myself, well, like if you really want to be like an installation, then figure out a way to make that clothesline taut enough to make that 30 foot span and make it like really work. That's where the incredible work, I mean, you you look at it, you know, Sheila Pepe, for example, yes, like you right. see some of her installations, they're, they're wrought right. installations of material, you, you know, yeah. and this kid failed on that level. And I think that's a curatorial failure as well. Um, and then the sound blankets with the collage stuff glued to it, <laughs> you know, Hmm. All right, get the message. Kara. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to side with Christopher on this. Um, He's a kid. I know it's the Brooklyn Museum, but he's a young man, isn't he? He's 32. But this is the thing, right, is that Hmm. I I think that 
There are many artists of his generation that are working within the language of abstraction and its relationship to to African American heritage and to um, where where abstraction comes from and how it was co-opted by a certain group of you know white men, <laughs> I have to say, in you know for the past fifty years, and he's reclaiming that territory. But I don't think that he's doing it as well or as conscientiously as some of the other artists who are making that work right now, and. The, the installation seemed very young to me. It just seemed a bit undercooked, underdeveloped. Um, and I think that there's, there's a lot more that he could have done with this platform. Um, and for me also, just the, the donation of these fabrics from uh, high-end fashion designers reeks of a certain market consumption and consumerism that that makes the work suspect for me. Um, I just think that the, the his references, Sam Gillian, David Hammonds. I mean, they're t- it's too derivative still at this point in time. And I'd like to. I would have liked to have seen him push this opportunity a lot further. All right. Sounds sounds like the criticism is is as much of the or even more of the institution than of the artist necessarily. I mean, a, a talented young man, but um, given too much uh, space and and intellectual and historical responsibility. But um, John, you have a generous eye. Tell us <laughs> tell us something endearing. Well, I I agree with. Chris, I thought this is a curatorial failure more than mm. an artistic <laughs> failure. You know, I think he's a young artist that mm-hmm. it's great they gave him a show, but they yeah. gave him too much space and made him try and fill it. They should have really given him less space and see what and pick, curated the work better. I mean, the thing yes. about the clothesline, I thought was, what's going on here? I thought the... I mean, I did think of Sam Gilliam, and I thought it wasn't quite... I mean, the clothesline... I think there's things that he has to kind of think more through more. The clothesline seemed like it could have been an opportunity to think about that and to think about clothes hanging from line and what neighborhoods you see that in, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I felt like he didn't really... He kind of equivocated it okay well my strategy for this segment of the evening was to um let you three enthuse about this young man and just keep quiet because i didn't think so much of the show but um uh, (laughs) assume that as we'd uh, selected him somebody would have something positive to say so a, a little apology to mr mack and a big slap on the wrist to the brooklyn museum i think there's a kind of consensus about um curatorial institutional fail because it really it's almost instructive the um, the fact that there is an artist making an installation and there are curators installing work and uh, we should find another word in the English language so we never confuse those two because one is um, a mode of artistic expression and the other is a bureaucratic decision and one doesn't want to have to end up using the same word for for two things as discrepant as those uh so um uh, but i i felt that there were i i think 
the fact that it was at the Brooklyn Museum in the Great Hall places an enormous um, weight of responsibility on it. And if things were the other way around, if 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 uh, Sharon Horvath got to fill the Great Hall and um, um, Eric Mack could make do with Pierogi Gallery, I think we'd probably be looking at it a lot more generously as a as a young oh, artist, so. uh, young artist showing uh, something that's actually is working with materials, materiality in some interesting ways. And um, the confusion, the, the knowing confusion almost, we would then see as more knowing the confusion of different degrees of intervention and foundness between uh, fabrics as, as a support for painting and fabrics as found things that are inherently pigmented in the first instance. And then those materials would kind of operate a bit like the vitrines in Sharon Horvath's exhibition. So um, I, I would want to, uh, for whatever motivation, probably fear, uh, I would want to extend a little olive branch to the artist and say, um, if I'd seen that work in a smaller space where you, you really had carte blanche to make installation art, um, I suspect that the, the materials and the interests and the sensibility that you have would have produced a satisfying result. I mean, there's also, you know, one of the things that's, and I said, it's hard for me, and I should, you know, let me be generous. You know, it's like as a young black artist and being a middle-aged black writer and artist, looking at it, you want to encourage it. And so that's why when you ask me like, what do I think, I'm like, I, I don't even want to talk about it because it's not ready. It's half-baked <laughs> or whatever. But um, the other side of it is to really, if if we dare do so, think about his work in relation to other African-American artists who use installation, uh, use the use space that way. I mean, we mentioned Hammonds, but like there's Mike Cloud. If you've ever seen a Mike Cloud show, mm. and put Mike Cloud in that space and see what would yeah. happen. Or Tomashi Jackson. Yeah, another person. Or Ellen Gallagher. Yeah, or another person. Or Rack of ba- Bailey. You know, there, there are a lot of people Names? that so, you could put... Okay. That he's up against, right? And so when you see him in that trajectory, yeah, it's it's almost like he's playing a little bit. You know, I mean, the the cute thing he did with naming the cloth after some Italian fabric thing or whatever. It's like, come on, man! Like, really, that's that's straddling a line where you're not really being on. You're not. You're not. You're half-ass standing not even in your own territory with your, you know, like you don't, I mean, when Hammond stands, Hammond's a global artist, you know, he's, he is universal and he is as black as night, but he is universal. But part of it is he's so sure footed and so grounded. And I think the thing that I felt with this is that (coughs) this kid's not grounded. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, John Michelle was 27 when he passed away and he blew this kid out of water. I mean, like, so is Raphael. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there's there's it's really apparent that um, he's got some work to do. I think he has the administrative thing down, you know, gathering the finances and, and, and being able to get people to kind of, you know, back him and figuring out how to negotiate um, both the not for profit and probably the profit uh, administration, the organization of those things, markets. Um, but he's got to get that art going. 
And that's that's an interesting. Or, or, or change jobs, yes, or yes, okay. And well, he has done large installations before. Yes, this he is has. not his first attempt at yes, this. Yes, at other so. museums, that's true. Absolutely, I, I was struck by that. Searching for images, absolutely. All right. Well, um, um, sorry to end our bit with um, um, a, a less than generous review, but that this is the review panel. You never can anticipate entirely what people are going to say. I try to make sure that. There's always one person who's really invested in an artist. And um, if, heaven forbid, it turns out there isn't, I usually improvise some uh, enthusiasm. <laughs> but um, I'm out of energy tonight. Um, so, uh, audience, uh, Sharon Horvath, Eric Mack. Um, very, very keen to hear a few comments from you. And there's a hand going up already. Excellent. Um, I... I wanted to, uh, I, I like what Chris said about Horvath's show, um, the generosity and uh, the, the feeling that you wanted to take one home. And I think what she's so good at was getting a really visceral, physical manifestation of pleasure. And I don't think we see that all that often. And I didn't mind that there was a lot of it. So. Thank you. Great. And there's another hand in, in that same row. Marvelous. Please speak into the mic so we can really hear you. Okay. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make a comment on the Sharon Horvath show as well. And uh, since we were talking so much about it as an environment, I, I thought it was really interesting where the racks were, right? And, and the paintings that were in there, they were kind of contained and tucked away. So you really had to make the choice of whether to look at them or not. But those were all the paintings that were in the Laurie Brookstein show. So I was like, oh, is that kind of a message of like, these are my more <laughs> controlled, you know, kind of like stable works or whatever that are more acceptable to the public and then here I am in this room kind of just exploding and doing everything I want to do and not worrying about the gallery space or what have you so anyway that was fine. brilliant yeah yeah I buy that that's that's a great observation thank you um yes uh front row here marvelous um we were filming at the same moment in Horvath's show thank you um <clears throat> I think the issue that you brought up with Sharon Horvath about the um, outsiderish quality of the work, I think, is an interesting question. I think we've kind of come to a uh, point now, in uh, at least in New York uh, art, that a lot of people are paying attention to the outsider, but then you've got a lot of various versions of outside. Mm -hmm. I think I was here a couple of months ago when you were doing a review panel on Lorna Simpson and Julie Maratu, I think I maybe came in for the last part of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I was looking at the images and kind of thinking about that, but they were both doing what I would say would be very acceptable New York abstraction. It's kind of black and white, uh, kind of using a certain amount of photographic or technology stuff in creating the images. And I just thought, that's kind of a standard approach to it for a lot of people making art today. And I was thinking at that time that it, I was thinking, I wonder what outsider stuff would look like. And again, we have to think about this in relationship to what's happening in New York. I thought Sharon's work, although it does have kind of a funky quality to it, would not look outsider-ish if you were in... San Francisco, or maybe if you're in Chicago or something right, like that. Yes. So I think there is a kind of a, a local view of what is um, 
acceptable, marketable, the mm. academic standard mm. thing as, as opposed to something that's more on the outside. There's definitely a stoner aesthetic, isn't there? There is kind of a stoner aesthetic. Um, what else was I thinking? <clears throat> the, the installation, in a certain way, though, um, still has a kind of... Um, it's a cleaned-up version of the studio. Mm. You know, and her little racks are very clean. The paintings are nicely wrapped. She even she saves little, you know, the residue that sort of dries in the bottom of some of her paint buckets or various kinds of little trays that she uses. She pulls that out and saves it almost like it was a little lace doily or something like that. There's almost a kind of uh, a preciousness and a um, fetishistic quality about some of those things. And in a certain way, I'm thinking, you know, Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I was thinking maybe a little more um, authentic dirt, grime, you know, kind of the real dusty funkiness of the studio might have might have kind of made that installation a little better. That's that's what I've got to say. Okay, mm-hmm. fantastic. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you, James. Calm. Lauren, I, I wanted to agree with something he said. Um, People in New York don't think of New York as a province, but it is a provincial place. I mean... Absolutely. Absolutely. Not sure. We're the empire. <laughs> Somewhere has to be the center of the universe. Why not New York? Topeka, uh, Kansas. Okay. <laughs> Good. Well, that's, that's a thought to ponder and uh, take into the chill night air. Thank you very much, everybody, and I hope to see you on June the 4th. And sorry we're not offering you a peanut and a glass of white wine this evening. Good night. <laughs>